If you're able to remain standing, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3. We stand out of just a demonstration of respect to the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 as we consider the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. So Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. I was going to start at verse 3, but it uh, makes more sense to start at verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you speak to us as we consider this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul met the resurrected Christ on that fateful day on the road to Damascus. And that changed his life, his life forever. You read the account of that conversion in three different places in the book of Acts. The original account is in Acts chapter 9 where it says that Paul is going to Damascus to persecute Christians, to imprison Christians, to likely kill Christians. He was doing that in his mind as a service to the true God of Judaism. And as he's going there, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, physically appears to him and asks, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, that's, that was how Paul used to be called, falls to the ground and the Lord Jesus changes his heart and prepares him to be greatly used for the sake of the gospel. 
Christ gloriously came to life from the dead on that early Easter morning almost 2,000 years ago and three years before he met Paul on the road to Damascus. We can read that in all four Gospels of the book of Matthew, verse 20, uh, chapter 28, starting verse 5. It says, The angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And these are glorious words. He is not here, for he is risen. Our Lord is risen. And Christ's resurrection is an irrefutable fact that has been tried to be disproven through the years. For 2,000 years now, people have been trying to prove that Christ did not rise from the dead just to be proven to be wrong. Our Lord lives. He is alive. The tomb, the tomb is empty. The Apostle Paul says that what he gave to the Corinthians, for example, is of first importance. The gospel of Jesus Christ in that gospel says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and he was seen by Cephas, but then by the twelve after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the great, greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then less of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul says, you can't deny that Christ was born. As a matter of fact, he showed up to so many people physically that they're still around today, Paul said to the Corinthians, go ask them. There is plenty of evidence that Christ is Alive from the very beginning, the physical, historical, and real resurrection of Jesus Christ became the focal point of Paul's preaching and of his theology. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has come to has become the first fruit of those who came. Uh, who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Paul understood the power of the resurrection. And that's why he, he, he sings, O death, where is, O grave, where is your sting? O, o death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to Jesus Christ who overca overcame that. The resurrection was Paul's motivation to pursue Christ because through it, he came to know the grace of God. When a person meets the resurrected Christ and his grace, he or she, the only thing they want is more of him and more of his grace. And Lord willing, that's what we eventually are going to look at this morning. That we are, because we have met Christ, we are to pursue even more the resurrected Christ. As we look at the passage we read this morning, we see that Paul is writing here. He wrote this particular chapter because there are two types of teachings that had come into the church. Both of them were drawing people away from Christ, so he addresses them. The first one is what's been called Jewish legalism. He addresses that in verses 2 through 3 and then 4 through 11. And the proponents of this teaching put their confidence in the flesh, that is, they thought that who they were in themselves and what they did determined whether God would welcome them into his kingdom. And that's a very common belief, that we think that our standing before God depends solely on what we do. 
that if we are good little boys and girls, God is going to like us. But if we are bad little boys and girls, then God is not going to like us. That is a false teaching from the pit of hell. If that's what you believe today, that's where you're going. There is no hope in that belief. For them, this particular type of uh, teaching, for them, they, their pedigree mattered tremendously. Who they were in themselves is what they're going to bring before, before God. And in addition to that, their religious performance earned God's saving approval. So they, so they, they sought. And that's why Paul lists the, his credentials in verses 4 through 6. Hey, you think you're hot stuff before God? Let me tell you about me. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day, according to Jewish law. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is, people spoke Hebrew at my home. I, I grew up speaking Hebrew. I was a Pharisee, the most elite sect of the, of the Jewish religion. I even persecuted the church as a service to God. So if you think you've done a lot of stuff in the, for the sake of God, I have done more. And he says, and those things mattered for nothing. As a matter of fact, he calls them dung, manure, human excrement. That's the equivalent of the best thing you can do. If that's what you're going to come and say, God, look at the wonderful things I've done. All that you bring in your hands is human excrement. And saying, God, you must love me because of this. How absurd is that? But that's often what we believe, that if we are just good enough, if you look at me, I'm, I'm just, I've done so many good things. Or we say, I'm not as bad as other people. And because I'm not as bad as other people, then God is going to accept me. So yes, Lewis said that as long as we can find one worse demon in hell than we are, we're going to feel comfortable that God's going to accept us. And that's not the case. The second issue that was coming into the church and deals with them in verses 12 through 16 in the passage that we read is implied there is something that's been called antinomianism. The word means anti-law, but the teaching is really anti-obedience. Now, this teaching says that whether you obey God's word or not has no impact at all in your life. You're not required at all to obey God. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, and that's the end of it. Don't worry about it. What comes next because that's all that matters is that you believe in Jesus. And the thing is, there is a kernel of truth in there, right? There is something that seems true about that, but that's not the whole truth. This teaching misses the point that we are saved, we are brought to Christ in order to obey Him. The call of the New Testament, the most simple confession of the Christian faith, the basic thing, if you're going to summarize Christianity in three words... The New Testament does that. And that summary is, Jesus is Lord. What, is it, what does it mean to be Lord if it is not to be followed, obeyed? And yet these people are saying, oh, it doesn't matter. You just live your life whatever, however way you want. You just believe in Jesus. And yet, you know, we all know uh, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 where it says we're saved by grace and through faith and that not of ourselves but of, is a gift of God that we might not boast. But we forget about verse 10 that that happens. We do that. And then when that happens, we become God's new creation. Christ, God's workmanship in Jesus Christ created to do what? To do good works in the sight of God. That's, that's what obedience is. Either belief, either the legalistic belief or the so-called antinomian belief, drive us away from Christ. 
Legalism says, do all these things in the list and you will be just fine. There's no need for Christ in that system. You just have to be really good. Jesus becomes just an add-on at the end. The antinomia, the anti-obedience says, believe in Jesus and live however you want. Jesus becomes just a box that you check, and once you check it, you don't have to think about it anymore. Life is yours to live, which is not accurate. And both positions result in self-centered, selfish living that has very little room for Jesus Christ. So Paul says, turn away from legalism, turn away from antinomianism, instead... Pursue Christ, but not any Christ. Pursue the risen, resurrected Christ. True grace, if you have experienced true grace, true grace creates a desire for more grace. You're never, never satisfied. You want more of the grace of God. As, as Paul lives a life that has been transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is not ecstatic in his life. His Christian life is not one that is just stuck in place. It's a dynamic life of growth. He's, in verse 8 says he's counting all things as dung, as manure for Christ. In verse 14 says he's looking, he's pressing forward. Nowhere in our passage we find any notion of having arrived at what he needs to be. We don't, we don't see Paul saying, if you have found God in Christ, you don't need to seek him anymore. The opposite is actually true. In verse 14, 12 he says... You have, you have Christ. If you're a Christian, you have Christ. So pursue Him. Pursue Him even harder than you have before. Uh, Bernardo Clairvaux was a, was a medieval pastor in France, in what we call today France. And he wrote several hymns. And one of them is now, just one of them is now our hymnal, hymn 643. And Bernard exemplifies what I'm talking about here. He says in that hymn, he says, We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon him. Not only so we're tasting him, but at the same time we're longing to taste him more. We drink thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. We're drinking of Christ, and at the same time, the more we drink of Christ, the more thirsty we are for him, the more we want of, of him. And that's the life of the one who met the resurrected Christ. Paul is setting before us what is the normative experience. This, this is what every believer experiences as we pursue Christ as a matter of everyday life. As Psalm 63 verse 8 says, My soul follows hard after you. Your right hand upholds me. That's, that's what the Christian does. He pursues Christ. He pursues Christ continu- continually. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, continued indifference to growth in grace is a sign of no grace. Continued indifference to the pursuit of Christ is a sign that you have not met Christ, that you have not experienced the grace of, of, of Christ. Meeting the resurrected Christ like Paul did millennia ago pushes us to keep pursuing Him. That's what we do. So, this morning, I would like to show from Philippians chapter 3, four reasons why we need to pursue Christ, the risen Christ, and three ways how to do that as we uh, move through this passage. First reason we must pursue the risen Christ is that we must pursue Christ in order to know Him. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul pursued Christ, forsaking all the things people normally boast about, and he did it in order to know him. Notice in these two verses, that these two verses speak of Paul's knowing Christ at his conversion and continuing to know Christ after his conversion. Verse 7, you notice that's a past tense. He counted all things lost for Christ. That's his reference to the, his, his meeting Christ in the road to Damascus. It's a past tense verb. He's referring to the first time he counted all loss for Christ. That, that time where Christ grabbed him, slammed him to the ground, and redeemed him. But that is not the end of Paul's counting all things lost for Christ. In verse 8, he speaks of his life after conversion. Notice the present tense. He continues to renounce everything that hinders his getting to know Christ. Why? Because the value of knowing Christ surpasses everything as far as Paul is concerned. And that should be our attitude as well. What Paul is conveying in these two verses is that the one who has been saved will pursue Christ in order to grow in his grace and knowledge. He is like the man who, in Jesus' parable, who joyfully sells everything to buy that field in which the treasure is buried or to buy the pearl of great price because that's so valuable to him or to her that everything else can be dismissed. Nothing is worth keeping that's going to keep him or her from that treasure. And that treasure is Jesus Christ and the knowledge of what he's done for his people. And not to want to know Christ is a sign of spiritual numbness and deadness in us. Paul even prayed for us as he prayed for the Ephesians that you may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's Paul's desire. That's the Holy Spirit's desire for the church of Jesus Christ that we might grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the first reason to pursue Christ is to know him. We never know him enough. And we can never be satisfied that we have known him enough. The second reason that we must pursue the reason Christ is that we need to verify our justification. The word verify means to declare to be true. The way we think, speak, live will declare our claim to be justified, to be true or false. Is to declare whether we are serious about our faith or, or, or not. And for, if you don't know what justification is, justification is an act of God's free grace in which He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In other words, is what we commonly call being saved. We pursue Christ to show that our faith is genuine. Our pursuit of the risen Christ declares our salvation to be true or false. We see that in verse 8 when Paul says, I count all things lost. I'm forsaking them. I'm pursuing Christ. I'm forsaking all things that I may gain Christ. Remember what our Lord said? That unless you hate mother and father for my sake, you really don't love me. 
Unless I am your supreme love in life, you don't really love me. That's what Paul is talking about here. We see also in verse 12 where he says, I'm going to press on. I'm going to press forward to know Jesus Christ. He doesn't wait around. He presses on to lay hold of what Christ has already done for him. His life declaration of the truth, his life, his life is a declaration of the truth that he is saved. If you don't have a desire to grow in Christ, examine your heart to see whether you really know Him. Examine your heart to see where you are with Him and ask Him to give you this desire. Paul says he counts all things as loss in order to gain Christ. In our context here, the, 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 Paul is counting lost things that are at one point or another important to him. We see that in verses 3 through 6. But we can include all things here, good or bad. The good that we've done, the bad we've done, the bad that we want to do, all that can be things that we count for loss. We must pursue Christ in order to verify our justification. Thirdly, we must pursue the risen Christ because we are so imperfect. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already attained. He hasn't gotten there. He's not in the place where he needs to be. Paul sees this as a great motivation. He says, I'm not there yet. So there's room to keep on pursuing the Lord Jesus. Fourthly, we pursue Christ. We pursue the risen Savior because He has made us His own. Again, Paul said in verse 12, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Christ has made us His own. He has laid hold of us. He's grabbed us. To himself. Now, and why has he done that? What's the purpose of Christ laying hold of us? One of the most misunderstood passages, I think, the most well-known passage in the misunderstood passage is Romans 8, 28. You know, we know that all things work to, uh, together for the good of those who love God are called according to his purpose. And we define what that good is. Oh, I really want this. So God's promising that he's going to give me that because that's what I think is good. But if you read verse 28, apart from verse 29, you miss the point. Because the point of the good, the only good that God is after is making us more like Jesus Christ. And that's what he got hold of us for. To make us more like Jesus Christ. God chose you and saved you in order to make you like his son. Christ grabbed hold of you to transform you to be like him. And we are all in a lifelong pursuit of Christ's likeness if you are a believer. So we pursue Christ's likeness because that is what Christ is working in us. Back in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do the hard work of pursuing Christ. Why? Because it is God who is working you to will and to do of His good pleasure. We do what God is doing for us. So we pursue the risen Christ. And we need to do that. Because otherwise we will perish. Now how do we do that? Let's turn from the why of our pursuit to the how. And I think verses 13 and 14 help us see the how. And the first thing we need to do is we need to develop a holy dissatisfaction look at what Paul thinks of himself he says I do not count myself to have apprehended I don't count myself as having gotten there I haven't gotten I don't count myself as having gotten hold of Christ fully yet 
Now, Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a profound dissatisfaction with sin that remains in his life. It is a wonderful thing to have Christ lay hold of us, but we must remember that he lays hold of people who remain sinful. So the first step in pursuing Christ is to develop a holy dissatisfaction with our spiritual life. Stand in front of the mirror of God's Word. The best way to know yourself is not to look just within yourself. The, 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 existential, the existentialist trip within yourself is one of despair, not one of reality. The best way to know yourself is to look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word. James says this is the mirror, and we look at it, and in it we find who we are. We are apart from Christ, and we are in Christ. So stand in front of the mirror of the Word of God, recognizing that you have not arrived yet. Let the Word of God tell you who you are and where you are going. And as we do that, then, as we do that, we're able to grow. So the, the hearty admission of our spiritual imperfection is the starting point of the pursuit of Christ. Because if you think you've already arrived, as far as sin goes in your life, you're not going to, you have no motivation to pursue Christ. You have no reason to pursue Christ anymore because you're there already. Well, let me tell you this. You're not. Do you know how I know that? Because you're breathing. Some of you are barely breathing right now. You may have even achieved REM sleep, but you're still breathing. And as long as there is breath in you, you have not arrived at the final destination. So So we pursue Christ because we needed to, and we do that by cultivating a holy dissatisfaction within us. Secondly, we pursue Christ, we, we do that by forgetting the things which lie behind. Anything in your background that hinders your pursuit of Christ, that should be put out of your mind and put out of your life. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no place for memory in our spiritual life. We've actually talked about that a few Wednesdays ago, the, the importance of building these memorials of the good things that God has done for us. The whole chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is a chapter of remembrance where to remember the faith of the saints that gone before us. So Psalm 71 verse 1 opens with an encouragement to remember where the psalmist says, I'll remember the works of the Lord. Surely I'll remember your wonders of old. The point is, only look back, only look back to your life for the sake of pressing forward. That's what memories are to do, is they're to press us forward. Memories of success can make you smug and self-satisfied. Memories of failure can make you hopeless and paralyzed in your pursuit of Christ. So never look back like that. Instead, give humble thanks for successes in your life. Make humble confession for failures. Then turn to the future and pursue Christ. Don't you find it interesting that Psalm 95 says that today is the day of salvation? It doesn't say what to, yes, that today, yesterday is the day of salvation or that tomorrow is what you believe today that matters. You don't look back for necessarily for your assurance in Christ. You don't necessarily look to the future for your assurance in Christ. You look, you look at what you believe right now. What is it that you believe right now concerning Christ? And how is that changing you? How has your encounter with the resurrected Christ has changed you and is changing you right now as you think of life, as you pursue pursue life? Another aspect of forgetting the things that are behind is that you are not so attached to whatever is in your past 
or present that you can't leave behind. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Uh, it's a cloud of witness. No, there's such a great cloud of So run the race that Christ has set before you. And we always remember the part says, and the sin which so easily snares us. But you know what else that verse says? It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily snares. Every weight is not sin. Every weight is just stuff or whatever. People, stuff, things, circumstances that keep us from pursuing Christ. And we are to shed our lives, uh, those things out of our lives. Now, so that, you know, Easter is supposed to be the time where you tone down your message so that you can attract people um, into the church, you know, to convince people that they should come to church and so on. So let me tone down my message here. Are you really willing to live your family for the sake of Christ? That's the kind of faith that Christ is calling you. Are you willing to live your successful career for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to live your children for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to live everything in your life for the sake of Christ? That's not, not, nothing more than that, but nothing less than that is what Christ is calling you to do. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to not be your own? Are you ready to be solely Christ? Are you ready not to care about anything else in your life? At least primarily. Only follow Christ. So forget anything that's keeping you from pursuing Christ. And certainly, strain forward to what lies ahead, Paul tells us. Paul uses here an example of the athlete who is running a race. You've always seen the race where... It's a close finish, and the, the athlete just reaches every part of his body forward in order to cross the line first. And sometimes you even have to have a, a photo of the finish line to see who is first. And sometimes just by the, 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 no, the, the hair on the tip of his nose or her nose that uh, he wins or she wins the race. That's the idea that Paul says. You just strain forward to what lies there. Just Just put your whole body, whole person into it, lean forward to, to that. You're, hurting, you're, you're running so hard that you're not even looking anywhere but forward. And if we don't forsake the things behind, if we don't leave things behind, what are we going to do? We're going to be doing this thing and that thing, looking back and sideways, and that's going to keep us from pressing forward. In, other, in another passage, Paul says that he did not run aimlessly or beat the air. He was engaged in this race. He was pressing forward. He ran with discipline, forgetting what is behind and reaching to what is ahead. And he, we are called to do the same. We are to pursue Christ by just straining forward, not being satisfied, not letting anything hold us back, cutting off all the extra things that Keep us attached to this world and pressing towards Christ. And as we finish this morning, notice that Paul's greatest desire in our passage, his greatest desire in pursuing the risen, the risen Christ, is that he be found not in all his accomplishments, not in all that he has done, not in his own righteousness, but in what Christ has accomplished for him in his death and resurrection. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, 
not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul's greatest desire is that when God looks at him, he doesn't see Paul. He doesn't see anything that Paul's done. None of the good stuff or the bad stuff. Paul's greatest desire is that when the Father looks at him, he only sees Christ and Christ's accomplishment upon Christ, upon Paul. Because Paul believed in Jesus. And at that very moment that he believed in Jesus, all that Christ was, all that Christ did became his. And Paul, and when God looked at Paul, he saw nothing but his son. Perfectly standing next to him in perfect love. If you're a believer, that's who, what the Father sees when he looks at you. He doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see your so-called perfections. Only thing he sees is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He sees the one who perfectly obeyed him. He sees the one who was willing to give of himself for others and who rose again to, the, to life. He sees the one who sits at his right hand in throne, the throne of heaven. And he loves you with that same love that he loves the Son. Can you imagine being found in that? With an infinite, perfect love directed to us. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. And that's who Paul wants God to see when he looks at him. Is that you? Are you counting on your righteousness? Are you counting on the good stuff that you do? Or are you counting on your being just a fine person? Are you afraid of coming to God because you've done a lot of bad stuff? God doesn't care. You're thinking too highly of yourself. You think that God cares about that. He cares about what you believe concerning Jesus Christ and what part Jesus plays in your life. Is he, are you standing on your righteousness or are you standing on Jesus' righteousness? Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That's whom we serve as followers of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have opened your word to us. We thank you that we can see it because of Jesus, Jesus Christ and his spirit working in us. And we pray, Father, that you point our hearts to Christ, even as we meditate upon the things that were preached on this morning. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.